Chapter Eighteen of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen. Jim is an unwelcome messenger. It was with a beating heart that Jim Conrad found himself at the door of the private hotel in Albemarle Street next day. In an odd sort of way, he could not help contrasting the well-ordered commonplace of the hotel with his own disturbed and impassioned mood. It did not look like the sort of place to hold a woman with a story like that of Clelia Vine, for he felt sure that he knew most of her story now. Nor did it even seem a fitting place to enclose the grief and the bereavement of Gertrude Moorfield, as if a tragic story must always be told in tragic tones as if grief must for ever carry a funeral wreath. He rang the bell. These small, well-ordered private hotels in the West End do not have their doors always open to the stranger, as the doors of the good Axilus were in the Iliad. A page-boy opened for him, and when Jim asked for Miss Moorfield, he was bidden to follow the youth, and was conducted into a sitting-room on the first floor, and politely informed that the fact of his arrival would be made known to Miss Moorfield. He had a few minutes in which to study the room. He could see that it was in itself, in its furniture and in its preconceived arrangements, a model of the best-class sitting-room in the small private hotel of the West End. But he could also see that the room had been disarranged, rearranged, and almost reconstructed. The table had been taken away from its conventional place in the centre of the room, Jim could see that, and had been set against one of the walls, and it was covered with books and flowers. On the formal sofas were thrown pretty pieces of Eastern work, Algerian work, as Jim assumed, made up for the most part of silk and of gold embroidery. It was not possible, of course, to abolish altogether the vapid framed engravings that were supposed to adorn the walls, but there were several pretty sketches set up that showed of artistic taste and refinement testing itself in crooked high-stared Algerian streets and in Kabyle villages. Jim could see in his mind's eye the two girls reconstructing the room and determined amid all their trouble to make it a habitable home for mortals endowed with some manner of artistic culture. His mind went back to the room in the Paris Hotel, where he had first been entertained by the Moorfields, and it must be owned that he felt a certain difficulty in controlling the outer and visible expression of his emotions. Then there was a tread of light feet on the stairs, and a rustle of petticoats, and in a moment Gertrude Moorfield and Clelia Vine were in the room. Jim could not help noticing a certain difference in the way in which the girls met him. Miss Moorfield was perfectly composed and serene. She greeted him with a friendly, welcoming smile, which seemed to have nothing of a past behind it but the tears sprang into Clelia's eyes as she held out her hand to welcome him. Jim understood the different ways of the two girls in a moment, and by instinct. Gertrude had, of course, set up for herself some theory as to how women should comport themselves in the most solemn trials of life. Clelia had no theory, 
she let her feelings show themselves if they would. He thought Clelia was looking handsomer than ever. The thought brought a pang with it. She was looking handsomer because the very expression of sorrow that spoke out of her eyes and from the deep shades beneath her eyes and from her trembling lips seemed to cry out for sympathy and comfort and he had nothing but bad news to bring her for he had made up his mind that he must tell her how he had become acquainted with her story and with her husband then they talked the girls told him all about their travels and about their uncertainty as to where they were going next they did not think of staying very long in london but then they were quite uncertain as to their prospects and projects and clelia said we are as you know fatally independent yes i know jim said and he did not quite know what to say next we were thinking of going to america gertrude said I suppose that in the new world we should get some new idea as to the destiny of womanhood and of the whole human race. But is it much of a new world? Jim asked. Hasn't it, too, grown pretty old already? Oh, no, I think not. I hope not, cried Gertrude fervently. I am sure we shall find some new ideas still there. We thought of going to India, too. Clelia said, and to China and Japan. My sentiments lead me rather to the old places than to the new. But then I am afraid I have not the earnest purpose that fills Gertrude's heart, the purpose to do good to womanhood and to the human race in general, man and woman. Come, Clelia, I won't allow you to say that of yourself, even to Mr. Conrad, who knows you. You must not believe a word she says of that kind, Mr. Conrad. She is as much concerned in doing good to women and to men as I am. Oh, what a way to put it, as if I were trying to praise myself and to make out that I was bent on becoming a great public benefactress. Never mind, dear, Clelia said. No one who knows you will ever suppose that you made any attempt to get praise or honour for yourself. Certainly Mr. Conrad knows you too well for that. Oh, yes, Jim said quietly, and yet with a certain shyness in his voice. I know Miss Morfield quite too well for that. He had given up calling the girls by their names. The time for effusiveness, he thought, had gone by. He was made shy only because he could not help remembering how Clelia had striven to make him fall in love with Miss Morefield and had urged him to make love to her. Then they came to more general talk, and Jim lingered on and on only too gladly. They were dining rather early. Miss Morefield pressed Jim to stay and join their little dinner. Jim stayed most willingly. The company of these two young women was genial to him. In a curious sort of way he seemed to look upon Gertrude Moorfield as one who out of her sorrow had grown older and attained to something like the position of a matron. When first he knew her, and until now, all the time he had known her, 
she was a girl under the charge of her mother now she was all alone and privileged to act for herself now she could choose her own place of residence could travel or sit still just as she pleased it seemed natural to jim that she should ask him to stay to dinner and that he should accept the invitation so they dined together they three tell me gertrude said the name of the champagne you used to like oh any wine will do for me jim answered abruptly yes but i know there was a wine you did especially like a champagne of some brand my mother knew all about it and always ordered it for you please let me do the same jim felt a little astonished that she should thus talk of her mother in connection with so trivial a subject perhaps his face showed in its expression something like the thought for she looked at him fixedly and then said you wonder at my speaking of my mother in that way yes i know you do but do you really think my mother is actually dead 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 for me jim was unable to make any reply gertrude replied for herself my mother is just as much alive for me now as if she sat by my side gertrude calmly declared it is only as if i were here and she were in san remo it is only a question of the time of separation we shall meet again soon or late she lives for me still and i for her i don't believe in death there is no such thing as death in that sense said jim you speak the truth there is no such thing as death but we commonplace mortals cannot feel so nobly and so purely as that i cannot to me death is death and to me said clelia sadly i agree with you i admire gertrude for taking so exalted a view of life and of eternity but i cry over my losses and i think them my losses all the same i believe in the continuity of humanity said gertrude solemnly i suppose i do too if i quite knew what it was clelia declared but i don't think i do know and besides darling gertrude you are peculiar in one way when you continue your humanity into another world there is no one likely to be there whom you will dread to meet some others are not so lucky you will go to rejoin your mother there are women who well i adored my mother and if she alone could claim me in the other world ah oh, then i should be glad to say that there was no such thing as death jim was astonished he had never before heard miss vine as he must still call her make such open allusion to the peculiar conditions of her life he was touched by the confidence it showed between her and gertrude between her and him no gertrude said decisively and as one who felt that the time had come to close the discussion i never could admit that my mother was dead to me she is not she is alive for me 
she is with me always jim looked up at her and he could see that for all her convictions and for all her confidence and for all her refusal to recognize the existence of such a thing as death her eyes now and for the first time were swimming in tears alas set up any theory of life or death you will life and death remain life and death and are proven by our own tears as well as by our own smiles jim was sure that gertrude's theory commanded her mind but he was equally sure that it did not command her heart and he could see for himself that it had no manner of control over the tears in her eyes come said clelia courageously all this time we have not ordered the champagne and we don't even know what we are to order do you know mr conrad a man told me not very long ago that he felt sure a woman's only idea of dinner apart of course from a regular dinner party was something on a tray do you think we are as bad as that well not all of you jim said delighted to give the talk a little brighter flow then they talked of many things the girls unfolded some of their vague plans to jim jim found in his mind some objection to every one of them his first wish was that they should stay in london while he was there but he had to do him justice a stronger and a deeper feeling than that he knew that they could not possibly settle on any plans until clelia had become possessed of the story he had to tell her it was a grim duty he had to perform but he had to perform it he wondered to himself whether he should get a chance of speaking to her alone that night or whether he should have to go away without telling her anything and then write to her and ask her to see him and hear what he had to say he felt as if he could not speak before gertrude although he had not the slightest doubt that whatever he told to clelia would be told at once by her to miss moorfield the dinner passed over jim was allowed to smoke a cigarette he would have been allowed to smoke a cigar if only he had had the courage to ask for such a permission the windows were open and the soft spring air of the twilight came freely in the lamps were lighted oh gertrude said abruptly and rising from her chair i must finish a letter do excuse me and please clelia don't let mr conrad go until i come back i shan't be long oh i shan't go jim replied then clelia and he were alone and clelia turned to him with an impatient look come she said eagerly you have something to tell me i see it in your eyes i saw it all the evening i have something to tell you do you know who is in town and has seen you clelia's eyebrows contracted and she pressed her hand suddenly unwittingly against her heart and a flush came over her face she had not in her mind the slightest doubt as to what she was going to hear tell me was all she said your husband is in town and has seen you oh god she murmured then her head sank yes it is true 
victim said i came to tell you but how do you know she asked somewhat defiantly lifting her head again and looking fixedly into his face who told you i never told you even his name no you never did but i know it now you are lady rose lady rose lady is his father dead yes and your very question settles it all for me your husband is now sir francis rose you were once called rosita by him because of his family name were you not and he called himself francisco and i found the ring which you threw away one day in the bois de boulogne and i little thought when i found it that i should ever come to know you and to and yes yes i can't help it and to love you oh hush hush my friend she said in a low and frightened tone you must not talk like that you must not think like that i can't think any other way jim said doggedly i shall think of you always like that but i'll not speak about it if you like no never once again i can promise that that's about all i can promise after all what does it matter to you whether i love you or not it is no fault of yours if i do love you it does matter to me ever so much she interrupted i want you to be happy and you can't be happy if you throw your love away it's my own love jim replied in the same tone and mood let me throw it where i like you can't prevent me i can't indeed i wish i could and i believe all you say and i almost wish i didn't and so you found the ring she said eagerly turning the perilous talk away i found it yes why did you throw it away it was you who threw it away of course oh yes it was i yes i knew that i figured it all out but only lately quite lately it cost me many sleepless nights before that i can tell you poor boy she said gently and compassionately what led you to take any interest in the ring of somebody utterly unknown to you how could i tell you it was fate i suppose at least that is the grand way in which the writers of romance would put it i knew from the very moment when i picked it up that it would have something to do with my life and so it has so it has tell me why did you throw it away my friend i can't tell you that i have so much sense of loyalty and of what you men call honour and which you say is unknown to women i never said anything of the kind and i never thought anything of the kind jim grumbled out well never mind i only meant some men i have so much of the sense of loyalty and of honour left in me that i will not arraign my husband to any one even to gertrude even to you there let us be done with that tell me does he know that he saw me 
does he know that i am in london i think not but if he cares to take the pains he can easily enough find out he will not care to take the pains i am nothing to him i read him differently said jim sadly she looked at him with a glance of keen inquiry but she restrained herself and said nothing on that subject you must tell me about the finding of that ring she said another time not now and you must give me back the ring if you wish for it certainly if i wish for it yes if i could wish for anything i only wish i could wish for anything even for the moon she smiled a wild smile and the heart of the young man was touched to the very quick he longed to touch her hand in merest token of sympathy but he did not dare to do it indeed to what purpose should he do it she knew all that he felt just as well as he did a pressure of the hand would make no difference into the story of her life love was now forbidden to come Clelia recovered her composure in a moment, and spoke in quiet, subdued tones. "'You shall tell me about the ring another time. Gertrude will be back in a few moments.' "'What do you mean to tell her?' "'About what?' "'Well, about what I have just told you.' "'About my husband being in London?' "'Yes.' "'Oh, I shall tell her that he is in London.' I shall tell her, my friend, all that I tell to you, but no more. She will not ask to know any more. She has full trust in me. You have full trust in me. I have indeed, he said fervently. I trust in you as I trust in heaven. Generosity of youth. Take care that you don't turn out cynical later on and talk of women as if they were beings that came from a different place not heaven is not that the fashion of the present day i know nothing of the fashions of the present day jim said vehemently i know what i think about you thank you she said gently look here hadn't you better think of leaving london soon i don't want you to go but would it not be well to avoid being seen yes perhaps to avoid being persecuted oh there is no fear she said not without bitterness why should he persecute me it was not from me it came well 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 never mind still if gertrude wishes to go i shall have no wish to stay there is nothing to keep me in london nothing poor jim asked quite forgetting himself for the moment and putting a question which he ought not to have put she turned on him with a look of kindness and compassion nothing she said firmly the less you and i see of each other for the present ah perhaps for ever the better hush here is gertrude and gertrude came into the room and they talked about things in general don't leave town without letting me know 
Jim said as he was getting up to say goodbye. Oh, no, surely not, Gertrude said with round, wondering eyes at his words. Why, she asked herself, should he imagine that they would leave town without letting him know? Jim saw her surprised look and knew he had said a stupid thing. His heart was touched. He could not bring himself readily to believe that the girl cared about him, but the mere fact that her closest friend had told him that she did care about him seemed to bring Gertrude into a relation of unspoken sympathy to him. He did not disguise from himself the truth that he had not of late been thinking very much about her at all. He had been absorbed in his own love affair. He had no time or thought for her. He was like everybody else in this, man and woman. Nothing is so self-centred as love. No, not even hunger, not even thirst. Jim made no attempt to set right his blunder and he took his leave with permission to call again next day, and any day as long as the girls remained in town. The moment he got into the street, his mind was again absorbed in Clelia. Gertrude dropped wholly out of his consideration. He would have thought of her if he had time, but then he had not time. He was wholly taken up with Clelia. Some of her words puzzled him, he turned over and over again what she had said about her loyalty to her husband. "'Can it be,' he asked himself with a pang, "'that in her heart there is even still some trace of love for him? "'Can it be that she would even yet be open to his talk and to his persuasions "'if he chose to exert them?' "'And then again for one moment he put the question to himself.' Would it not be better that she should go back to him and make the best of her married life, since she was married and could not escape from marriage? But no, 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 Jim resolutely said to himself, with that man she never could be happy, with that man she never could live. Poor Jim believed that he was absolutely unselfish and was thinking only about her when he came to this conclusion. Perhaps he was. Certainly the more he had seen of Sir Francis Rose, the greater and more growing had been his suspicion, or his conviction, that behind all that gay and reckless and debonair exterior there was in hiding and on the watch a reckless, a selfish, and a ruthless nature. Why he thought all this he could not explain, but it had for a long time back been borne in upon him. Well, he said to himself at last, and the assurance brought him some poor and pitiful little comfort, he has no motive in trying to win her back. He has nothing to get by her. In which self-offered assurance Jim made two mistakes, one as to character, and one as to fact. End of chapter 18